Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode nine of Pith and Moment, a podcast for all things Shakespeare. My name's Kyle Downing. I'm a Shakespeare coach in New York City, and my special guest today is Lenny Banavez of Titan Theater Company in uh, Queens, New York. Lenny, what's going on? Not much, man. Thanks for having me. Of course. I'm pumped to talk about Othello. This is one I've been meaning to get to for a while. Um, and you actually uh, recently directed a production of Othello. So why don't you just tell us a little bit about you and your background and your history? Uh, great, yeah. Uh, I am the artistic director at Titan Theatre Company in Queens, New York, which is the official theater in residence at Queens Theatre uh, in Flushing Meadows Park. Uh, for those that don't know where that is, that's right by the Met Stadium, by the U.S. Open, uh, that beautiful park that was built for the World's Fair. Um, I'm actually from the University of, I'm from Ohio University, but I still studied under Jack Young, uh, who was the teacher um, at the time there before the program moved to University of Houston. Um, I'm from Wisconsin. I spent a lot of time at the Milwaukee Repertory Theater, um, did a lot of musical theater, and wound up, when I went to grad school, switched over to Shakespeare. So um, musical theater and Shakespeare are kind of my, my uh, specialities which is an odd combo, and then not an odd combo at the same time. I'm right there with you, man. It's been my whole life. <laughs> um, cool. So, Othello. Yes. Why, don't, uh, why don't we talk just a little bit about Othello? For the listeners who don't, uh, who aren't familiar with the play, can you give us just a quick synopsis? Uh, yeah, Othello the more, um, the basic kind of storyline is uh, a... Uh, High-ranking Moorish, uh, Moorish general in uh, the Venetian army is um, sent to Cyprus to uh, handle some issues with the Turks there. Uh, he is a man of um, different ethnicity. Uh, that is something we can talk about. Uh, he's generally played by an African-American actor now or an, Afri an actor of African descent, but, um, you know, Middle Eastern, that kind of area. Um, he is, throughout the course of the play, is manipulated by one of the greatest villains, if not the greatest villain ever written, um, Iago, into thinking that his um, extremely innocent wife, Desdemona, has cheated on him with uh, his best friend, Cassio. Uh, so from there, um, there's this kind of downward spiral as Iago's plan unfolds and uh, creates all this kind of inner turmoil in Othello um, with the play ending, as all tragedies do, with lots of dead people on a stage. <laughs> so that's pretty, a synopsis. <laughs> yeah. Short and sweet. Pretty much everybody just ends up dead. Yeah, yeah. Tragedy, dead people. Uh, comedy, married, married people. Married people. So. <laughs> that's how it goes in Shakespeare. Uh, so, female cast, right? Yeah. You did... Othello at Titan Theater Company with an it was an all female cast right it wasn't gender reversal it was all female all female we changed all pronouns to make it a world of females so where did this idea come from first of all and then how did you go uh, about accomplishing it uh, the idea popped into my brain I would say gosh about three three years ago based on as a director I've always had the the kind of feeling or the aesthetic, whatever you want to call it, that there um, there weren't enough females on stage in Shakespeare. So hmm. if you go back through kind of my resume of Shakespeare productions that I've directed, I've always kind of gender flipped uh, a character just to, because I've ha I have so many amazing female actresses um, 
that that I always want to use, but there's you just eventually run out of parts for them. Uh, so the very first play I directed was Macbeth, and we turned Lennox into a lady and called her Lady Lennox and all this. And and it's kind of been a theme for me because as I try to involve more females in our productions, Tybalt we played as um, as a girl. Interesting. Uh, we did uh, the chorus of Henry V was played by a female. Uh, we did the gender flip um, pull out of a hat Midsummer, which caused a lot of, you know, females playing male roles. Um, so how it's always been kind of my aesthetic to add more strong, powerful women actresses to our plays. Um, so I've had the idea to do an all-female Othello based on the fact that it is this extremely, what we would call masculine play, you know, mm -hmm. uh, armies and jealousy and rage and violence and, you know, all these soldiers let loose on this island. Um, so we would call it an extremely masculine play, and I wanted to see what it would be if we kind of flipped the lid and made it an all-female play, but didn't, didn't really change anything other than pronouns. So I still wanted it to be masculine and, and brutal and violent. Mm -hmm. um, and the kind of catalyst to put it on the season was when Mark Rylance came out with his all-male Richard III and Twelfth Night, which I saw and loved. So it has nothing to do with not liking what Mark Rylance did, but my first initial reaction was great. You know, take all the female roles away from the females and just <laughs> make it all males if there wasn't enough already. So my kind of... Um, the pendulum swung for me, and I said, I think now is the time to do this. Um, so we did it. And I heard it was very well received, so congratulations on, on the production and on uh, Thank its you. Thank success. You. It was well received, um, it, but there's, a, you know, the kind of the flip side to that, you know, um, it, it, all the reviews weren't perfect, you know, we do... At Titan, we do a lot of unique things. You know, we kind of pride ourselves on two-hour Shakespeare. So we're, you know, um, I'm exceptionally liberal with cutting. Um, <laughs> I'm a pure, believe it or not, and a lot of people would, you know, would argue this to my face, actually, <laughs> and to the death that I'm not a purist. But, um, you know, kind of how I, I don't want to say defend it. It, it, it. There's a million and one places that we don't, that have the budget to do in a three and a half hour Shakespeare, you know, Bam mm -hmm. did a, a lovely three and a half hour King Lear. Our King Lear was two hours and eight minutes. Now, um, we, I, tr I don't want to lose story and I don't want to do, uh, anything in absolutely completely insane, but my job is to present an entertainment, you know, if you will, and to find our niche in the most competitive market in the country. So um, a two-hour and ten-minute, I believe, Othello, um, I'm very proud of. And the purist in me, every time I cut a line, goes, oh, I, I really want that, but what story am I trying to tell? Mm -hmm. And now when people walk out of a Titan show, whether they liked it or, or hated it, um, they know what we were trying to say. And that's important. It's a clear story. Whether or not you like the story we tried to say is up to you. That, that's what makes theater so awesome. Um, but it's a very clear story. There's no one walking out going, what just happened? Well, people know what happened. And whether you like it or not is up to you. And that's you know, what's so cool. it's interesting. I'm working on a video right now uh, about a monologue that 
does require some cutting in order to do it for an audition. It's uh, Catherine, uh, Catherine and Henry VIII, uh, Sir, I Desire You Do Me Right and Justice. And it's a, it's a great action objective piece. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I've been talking a lot about how cutting, you need to keep the verse intact and you need to keep the story intact above all else. Yeah. So cutting, cutting the poetry and cutting intermittent things is sometimes painful. But at the end of the day, it is just about keeping the story intact and the yeah. story that you want to tell. Yeah, and you and, and that's what's so cool about Shakespeare, um, as, as we get off on a little tangent, but I think it's a good tangent, um, is, you know, bringing up Benedict Cumberbatch's Hamlet. You know, why does everybody want to see Benedict Cumberbatch's Hamlet when we just had Jude Law's Hamlet? Well, we want to see his Hamlet. We, we want to see what you're going to do with it, and that's is what's so cool and why he's still, Shakespeare is still so relevant and fun and, and why, you know, I, I seek to see productions out because I want to see what that group does with it. You know, we had an extremely successful Midsummer where we did this crazy thing when everybody memorized everything and pulled the rolls out of a hat. And now <laughs> Bedlam has an extremely successful Midsummer, and I cannot wait to see it, you know. Um, and that's what's so cool. How's Titan going to do it? How's Bedlam going to do it? How's Theater for a New Audience going to do it, you know. That's what is what's so great, and um, and what are the things I love most? You know, it's just Shakespeare is not only a playwright, but now he's a community, a community of creative people that are attempting to do these plays for modern audiences. Well, and what's great about it is the the language is so timeless, and it's been done so many ways, so many thousands of times in history that in order to draw attention and in order to say something different, you almost have to take a risk. Of, of that level, yeah. you know, and, and explore it from a different angle, because obviously this language has been explored in so many different ways. It's just yeah. helpful to find that one other way to explore it that maybe nobody's thought of before. You're exactly right, and it's a great segue back onto, you know, the, the directorial thing, you know. What were we, knowing that doing an all-female Othello could be quote-unquote called a gimmick, you know, they're doing something that, you know, trying to shake the snow globe. Great. Yeah, sure. Um, but going at it, I still wanted to tell Othello, no matter what you do, no matter what crazy choices you make in casting or in how you choose to do the play or your cut, no matter what, you have to tell the story. Because mm-hmm. if the story's not there, you're just, you know, it can have this big, lavish, fancy set. Um, but that's just wrapping paper. You know, and you have to have the story. So when we decided, you know, pronouns, do we change them? Do we keep them the same? I go, no, let's make it a land of women. And then when we were talking to the fight choreographer, what do you want to do? Do we want like hair pulling or I'm like, no, no cat fighting. I want the most brutal, violent show we've ever done. And that is exactly what we achieved was just uber violent, uber masculine kind of production that was done by some of the most badass female actors on the planet. Um, and they really took it and they ran with it. You know, it, it was powerful, you know, and, and for people that, that really enjoyed it, they, they could see that there's so many things like women feel jealousy, women feel rage, you know, it's universal. Not, it's it's not just about a masculine set of themes. It's about universal themes across both genders. Exactly. Exactly. But and and so 
you know, when I keep using the word masculine, it's it's what people want to put on it. So I always try to throw the argument out and then, you know, it's like a political debate. <laughs> Here's the thesis. And now how do we how do we do that? You're right. There are across the board, you know, domestic violence happens in same sex couples. You know, it's not just mutually exclusive to to male, female. Mm-hmm. So, so that, that was what was so cool. How many cool things came out of that? Um so then yeah. let's let's start with with Othello. How what kind of cool things came out of having a female Othello then? Uh, well, you know the having a female Othello really kind of uh, especially in the beginning before the kind of downfall uh, begins. You 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 get this person you know and the, those lovely speeches about um, how him and Desdemona would have conversations when um, he's arguing with in this case mom. Um, about uh, why, you know, the marriage, you know, she sought me out, you know, it was just, you could, um, we found this kind of warmth to him, you know, there, uh, traditionally that's Othello standing up and saying, look, this is how it, you know, it could be, it becomes very, you know, peacocking between two gentlemen. Mm-hmm. Um, but what wound up here is it, it, we got this kind of soft, um, yet powerful kind of, you could see the, the romance that happened as, as he, uh, she was wooing Desdemona, um, which, which really set up a great place for Othello to fall from, mm. knowing that Othello was really a heart-driven character until Iago started to manipulate where the, uh, the, from the heart to the head. So then... From Viago and, and from that whole perspective, how did that work, having it be a female trying to bring a, a female down? What did uh, that change about the relationship? Well, you know, not to make, the first thing that came to my mind, and we kind of laughed about it, and it is, it's a little fluffy, so it does make fun of it, but Iago became the ultimate mean girl mm-hmm. in, a, in a unique way, in a very cool way. Um, we had an amazing actress, um, named Laura Fry, who, who really just, I was not expecting that kind of Viago. I, you know, I looked at this as an experiment, an experiment that went really well. Like, I don't know how this is going to go, but let's do it. Let's take a huge risk. And we did it. Um, what was really great, not only through her skill, um, but also through the gender flip was that we got this person who could, which is universal for all Iagos that succeed in playing the role, that could switch on a dime from being your best friend to being the most evil human on the planet. Um, but when you add, when we added that kind of extra layer on, you, it, it almost made it more kind of personal. It was very personal and, and not about um, a lot of things that, you know, we would consider uh, men to get upset about, like rank and all that. It, it, it became this very kind of personal, like, kind of vendetta against Othello in general. Um, you know, there's something this reminds me of. Uh, Amelia and I were talking about, uh, Amelia Fisher also uh, went to University of Houston. We talked about last week how she's currently directing a production of Much Ado About Nothing that is not color blind but color aware. And uh-huh. what she says is that rather than just pretend everybody's the same color, back mm-hmm. in 1840s Texas where she said it, everybody is. There are actors of many different ethnicities cast, yeah. but it is there. The production is very aware 
of the ethnicities of these characters and yeah. builds that into the story and how things are acted around. Yeah. And it sounds like what you've done is is a very similar thing. It's not a gender-blind casting. It's a very gender-aware production that is, yeah. what is this in a female's hands, not just pretending these yeah. females are males. Exactly. And that, you know, that's where a lot of people didn't, that, that, didn't you know re respond well to the play or well why didn't you just leave the pronouns the way they were well that was the experiment was to make the world a female world um a world where um where men existed but just weren't present you know there's there was you know they weren't immaculately conceived you know they <laughs> they were there but there was no men present you know it, it, mm. the, the roles were flipped um you know, we had an extremely light-skinned Othello, so the race thing was very, you know, it was a matter about being slightly different. It wasn't, you know, it, it was a very cool kind of dynamic. Um, and the Iago line that popped the most, and I'm going to misquote it, but I'm going to get close, I think. Um, when it's, Iago is talking to Rodrigo early in, the, in what was our act one, and Rodrigo's flipping out that um, Desdemona's not going to love him. Or her in this case, and in our version, uh, the lines read something to the effect of, uh, "In all my years, I've never known a woman to love herself," um, mm. which was really kind of you know very poignant for today's world. Um, I wish I had the exact quote, but I'm not going to dig it up because you'll hear me clicking on my computer. Um, but. Uh, the other way around, it, it, it's, you know, I've never known a man to love himself. Um, but in today's society, to say that, you could actually hear the audience go, ooh. <laughs> and what was really kind of neat, how that these little things would pop out as you started to switch the genders. So then with Desdemona being a part of this, not all female wor world, but a play where all it's all females present, what was that relationship like? Obviously, that that has a sort of yeah. not political statement, but with with everything that's been going on the past year, there there is a uh, contemporary sensibility to that that certainly mm -hmm. would affect the audience and reach the audience in a certain way. How did that yeah. work? Well, you know, there was there was two stages of that. Um, we could talk about how it worked on stage and kind of jump back a little bit to a question I was asked a lot um, because when it came to the the, the quote-unquote lesbian relationships in in our version. You know, a lot of people were asking, you know, are you doing this because you want to make it a feminist, are you a feminist statement or you want to make a pro-gay statement or, or, you know, to be honest, and I, and I was honest with everybody. I The idea came because we had so many talented women I wanted to get on stage. Mm -hmm. All these other things are these extremely positive byproducts. And now... One of the main byproducts of that was the relationship of Othello and Desdemona, um, you know, with very simple costuming, uh, which is kind of our M.O. Uh, the women that were still playing traditionally women roles were in dresses and things that were a little softer so that there was still it was more about um, status and power than gender. So in Desdemona's and Othello's relationship was um it was one of the coolest things <laughs> because it, it still had, they had different dynamics, but it was these two absolutely stunning women that had this loving relationship. And I said, you know, like I said earlier, it, they were, 
it made the false hurt so much more for Othello. You could see the, the travel into what we'll call madness, um, uh, rage, blind jealousy, whatever you want to call it. Um, such a very kind of cool and unique journey, knowing that um, that relationship is so pure, and they were so good at, at, at making that kind of stand out. Um, there wasn't this overpowering man that had, you know, swept this girl off her feet. It was kind of a mutual stance. They were worthy adversaries, you mm -hmm. know. Um, and our uh, Desdemona was brilliant, too. Emily Trask is, a, is an amazing actor. So uh, we were very lucky to have her, and she, um, she pulled it off brilliantly. So the, the next subject I want to move on to is key scenes in the play. So as long as we're talking about... Uh, uh, Desdemona and Othello, why don't we start off with the scene where Othello hits Desdemona? Yeah. Um, because in in a um, patriarchal society, or whatever we want to call it, in a man-ruled world, mm -hmm. when a man hits a woman, especially nowadays, it is it's a very sensitive subject. What, what was this like with a woman hitting another woman in, in the midst of this relationship? This was... Um Oddly enough, one of the best byproducts of, um, of the same-sex casting, of the mm -hmm. gender flip. Um, and this is why. When you see Othello in its traditional standpoint, because of what exactly you just said, um, uh, when a man hits a woman, it's over. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's no coming back. You know, that it, for a lot of audience members, and for me in particular, there's no coming back. That's where you start to hate him. He um, is no longer a sympathetic character, especially the way it happens. It comes out of nowhere. Um, we're not primed for it. You know, there's she's done absolutely nothing. He hits her in a moment when she is trying to calm everybody down um, or explain to the um, to Lodovico what what's happening. Um, and what was really kind of great about this production, because of our modern sensibilities. When our female Othello hit our female Desdemona, there wasn't that jaw-dropping end of liking Othello. Sure. Um, which allowed you to stay with Othello longer on his journey into the eventual end scene, rather than turning it off and waiting for the inevitable to happen. Right. You were able to still go, whoa, what the... And then it t our brains are set one way and your brain and, and our action was fast paced, as you can imagine, in a two hour cutting. Right. We didn't give you a lot of time to sit and think on it. So there wasn't a whole lot of, well, what does that what does that make me feel like? You know, that that just happened. It came out of nowhere. We made sure that she stood stood up, got right back in his face and said, I didn't deserve that. And so it wasn't just kind of beat down when a man would hit a, a woman and, and cause her to physically crumble. Um, it was a very interesting thing. So you were allowed to stay with Othello longer. And this is what an audience member told me. Not this, So this is what kind of brought it to light. It really didn't pop until the audience member said, I was able to stay with her until the very end, and um, which makes the end so much more, so more heartbreaking. So then speaking of the end, then the... Strangulation scene, right? Uh, so the way I've seen it before in multiple productions of Othello is this giant general 
right, just is about to strangle this this teeny little woman, and you know from the beginning that yeah. she's doomed. You know, she's she's gonna die. In in your production, I, I'm not sure what the casting was or how Othello and Desdemona were cast stature wise, but did it ever feel like Desdemona had a chance? Uh. No. In the physical aspect, our casting was um, Leah Dutchin, another brilliant actress that we were very lucky to have. Um, she, she's ripped. <laughs> she, she, really, uh, she really worked out for the role and looked just gorgeous on stage. So she did tower over the Desdemona. Uh, hmm. so in a fight, you would not think that our Desdemona could win against... Um, uh, Othello. So you knew that this was going to end badly, but what, again, when we, uh, going back to that, you were able to hang on longer. We really focused on the first moment when Othello comes in and has that gorgeous monologue, um, before he wakes her up. Um, in this case, she wakes her up. That's where the questions were kind of arisen, whether or not she was ready to do it. I wanted to hold onto that kind of thread as long as possible that we might not pull the trigger on this murder. Mm -hmm. um, because I've seen so many productions uh, to various degrees of success that the second Othello walks in, you're like, well, she's gone, you know, <laughs> and then there's nothing, there's nothing to kind of build the tension. You're just waiting to see how they do the fight scene. Um, so what was really neat, it, how it worked out, it was just this very kind of, tender discussion of what to do next. Then, then when it happened, that's when I unleashed our flight choreographer, John Hicks. And I said, this needs to be hard to watch yep. because what it was is like you said, normally it's this towering general over this young, this young woman. Uh, what it was here is it was still a towering general, but, but not towering in the fact that like a bodybuilder, mm -hmm. you know, hold Desdemona fought back. And she fought back hard, which made it very hard to watch. Sure. So there was a true struggle. Like it took every ounce of Othello to hold her down, um, which then in turn made it even more brutal. Um, lots of, and it, and I don't want to say we milked it, but maybe we did <laughs> with some uh, extra, you know, leg kicks and stuff. Well, the um, great thing about yeah. a fight like that is. It, the idea, you have to make the audience want to feel uncomfortable in whatever yeah. way you can because the the whole time the audience is thinking, no, no, she was yeah. truthful, don't do it, don't do yeah. it. And the longer it lasts, the longer it seems like, well, maybe somebody will, for somebody who doesn't know the play, maybe maybe somebody will burst in and, yeah. and give the news. Yeah. Or And, and at the feels. end especially, you can yeah. see when he finds out, it, the more uncomfortable that scene was, the more it's going to resonate with the yeah. audience. And what was really great is the audience response. The positive audience response uh, was, oh, I couldn't look at that, but I couldn't not look at it. <laughs> you know, and yeah. in, in our theater at the Queen's Theater is the studio. And it's this lovely, beautiful, intimate space that allows you really to to be a part of it. And we did onstage um, seating for all the actors. So the actors never left the stage. They were all there all the time. Um, so every you could see. Amelia in her actor chair waiting to come on and you you would just imagine there was audience behind her and next to her probably just wanting to throw her into the mm. scene and say save her she's right there just save her um which was you know, a very unique and and fun kind of uh kind of you know this positive byproduct from taking from from doing this experiment I don't want to call it a risk but it really was an experiment
Sure. So, so. The, this whole scene is is a result of Othello gradually breaking down over the course of the play. For those of us who know the play, it is mm-hmm. it is a result of his his biggest tragic flaw and of Iago exploiting it throughout the play. Yeah. And I wanted to talk a little bit about that word, tragic flaw, because the, this play is, is often known best as a play about jealousy. Mm-hmm. Um, the, 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 the green-eyed monster, the famous green-eyed monster phrase comes from this play, Othello. Yeah. And what I want to know is, is this, where, jealousy is a symptom of something, Mm-hmm. It's always a symptom of something. So are we talking about insecurity? And if so, uh, what kind of insecurity are we talking about? Or are we talking about something else entirely? Yeah, you know, it, it's hard to pinpoint, you know, Othello's true tragic flaw because he's being worked on so hard by mm-hmm. somebody. Somebody so evil, you know. Um, so when you try to find a true tragic flaw in him... Um, For me, it becomes a universal tragic flaw, you know, insecurity. Um, The uh, well, because the way I see it, when this play starts, it 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 immediately starts with Brabantio, you know, being angry at at Othello, and you don't exactly know why Brabantio doesn't like Othello, and Mm -hmm. you sort of get the idea that maybe Brabantio is. At least in modern productions, Brabantio is this traditional father who just doesn't like Othello because of his skin color. Yeah. And well, I, well, the thing is, is like in what we find out from Othello's speech in the Senate is that Brabantio really did like Othello for a long time as as a commodity, as an interesting kind of quote unquote creature that would come to dinner parties. And so that's why that speech in the beginning is so powerful, because, you know, I wooed her just with stories, the same stories I was telling you. And, um, you know, you can trace it back to to any sort of racism. Well, oh, that's great. Yeah. Look at this novelty. But that no, that quote unquote novelty is now married to my daughter in secret. You know, well, and so, it's it really hits you, especially I mean, race is. It should, is less of a deal now, but it's still it's still ingrained in society. Like race, racism is still a problem. So when you yeah. see hear this um, this gentleman this gentleman talking about, hey, you know, mm-hmm. so I, I I'm not racist. I have a black friend. But wait a minute, yeah. now that black friend's dating my daughter, and I'm okay, not okay with it. Yeah, exactly. It really like strikes because nowadays like. You know, right. now that we're past racism is a buried problem, which is now coming back to the forefront because right. it, it was one of the it's, you know, with all these talks with Ferguson and all that stuff, you know, racism is is a is a problem that has always been present. But we just didn't talk about it anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, there was we never really fixed it. We just brushed it under the rug. And what's so great about Othello is it it kind of hits on that. You know, um, they brushed it under the rug because he. He was winning wars for them. He was telling mm-hmm. great stories. He was this very interesting person from another land that could come in. But wait a second. Whoa, you're marrying my daughter? That needs to not happen. So does so, this is this part of Othello's insecurity, or is it something that's preyed on by Iago? I mean, obviously, Iago begins to manipulate mm-hmm. through, through um, 
the vessel of Desdemona. Desdemona being something that someone that Othello cares very much about, but perhaps because of Brabantio's speech in the beginning, mm-hmm. feels somewhat insecure about their relationship. And is that an element that Iago is using to play on? I him? you know there. It can be taken many ways. The text supports that Othello could be insecure about his his skin color. Um, there's uh, text support that that he it's pure manipulation um, when it comes to when trust is being broken. You know, um, you can put it all on Iago being hmm. really good at his job, depending on how good your Iago is, sure. or you can put it and you can try and find it in. In Othello himself, in our production, uh, to use our production as an example, we didn't really focus on a tragic flaw. We focused on what was really a truly happy marriage that through these, you know, stages of manipulation caused this person to to deteriorate and start to show flaws and in numerous ways. All of a sudden he's violent. All of a sudden he is uh, rash and over-emotional. All of a sudden, he's insecure, you know? Um, so we can say that, you know, I think Iago is, ex- is exploiting a numer and what makes Othello such a unique character in the terms of tragic flaw and trying to single out what the tragic flaw is, which, you know, in most cases is hubris coming from the Greek plays. Um, it was interesting, rather than finding the one thing Iago was able to stick, you know, pins in different areas. Right. And that's what was interesting to watch. Um, there was more than one thing that he could use to push over the edge. And that's Cassio's- brilliant because there always is. Like, every, like the, even in a happy relationship, there are – nothing is perfect. There are always things oh. wrong. And rather than focus on one thing, it's it's probably more effective to – to pick at multiple different weaknesses until it all yeah. spirals downhill. Yeah. And it gives, and it gives, you know, uh, the Iago character who can traditionally be played curling that mustache and I'm the evil villain was able to, you know, to have a lot of points of attack. I, I mean, if you talk to my wife and she go, if you were to say, what's Lenny's tragic flaw, <laughs> she would name at least 10 things. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, and I'm probably being generous with that. <laughs> So I, you know, as 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 a theatrical device and the theater kind of education, theater history type of thing, uh, tragic flaw is very important. Um, but from a human standpoint, let's try and find all the areas we can poke that person. And um, and Ariago was able to achieve that in, in in some really cool ways. Cool. So now that we've talked plenty about Othello, I'm going to move us on to the next couple of segments and. Uh, for you listeners that have been, that have listened to this podcast for a while, and he's about to play a game. Um, and I told, (laughs) I told Lenny just before, like I told Lenny he was going to be playing a game, but I didn't tell him what it was until right before the podcast started so that he didn't have time to prepare. Uh, I'm not even going to go get my phone to pull up. (laughs) The can the pull up the cannon. So I I'm not even, I'm gonna and you 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 can see me on video. So yes, no cheating. So that's right. My intelligence shall be questioned after this. And I, this I prepared to be humbled. So basically, while I'm on the subway in New York City, I spend my time coming up with fun games that I can do on this podcast. And this is the hardest one 
that I've played ever on this podcast. Most, and the reason I chose to do it today was mostly because it was the only one I had left from my last subway ride. I haven't come up with any other games in a while, and this is the one I had floating around in my iPhone, and it is called What's in a Name? Oh. And in this game, I am going to give Lenny the name of a Shakespeare character, and the name, this name appears in multiple plays. I will tell Lenny how many plays this name appears in, and he will t have to try to tell me as many plays as possible. So, with that in mind, and I'm going to grab a pen and paper just so I can keep count for no other reason than to keep count, because the score doesn't matter and this game is stupid. <laughs> so, the first name is Juliet. Juliet. And Juliet appears in two plays. Of course it does. Well, we know the main one, so we'll stick with that. There's... <sighs> Juliet... Mm. I'm going to guess. All's well that ends well. No, the answer is Romeo and Juliet and Measure for Measure. Really? Yeah, man. I wish I was on episode seven. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Go for one. Here we go. Bring it. Well, actually, one for two. So well, we're going to say, okay. yeah, we're going <laughs> to assume you knew so Romeo and Juliet. We're doing generous scoring. Not, not <laughs> All right. Here we go. So... Sir John Falstaff. Okay. Three. Three. He's in uh, four one, four two, and Merry Wives. That's correct. That's all three. So that's all of a sudden that's four out of five, right? All of a sudden, see, and there I'm looking, I'm looking better. So the next one is Catherine. Catherine. Uh, the the many versions of Catherine. Um. Yeah, so, spelled with an E or spelled with an A. All right. Well, we'll do Catherine in Henry V. Um, Lady Percy's Catherine, right? Is she? I think she is. I think her first name is Catherine. You might not have that one. Cool. Um, so I don't. <laughs> Catherine. There's other Catherines. Katerina, they call me. So Taming of the Shrew. Mm -hmm. um, how many did you say there was total? Well, there are two, but now I realize there are four. So ah, uh, there are four. So, but you get three out of two because you came up with the ones that I Oops, didn't so that know. makes up for my Juliet debacle. All right. <laughs> so all of a sudden, it's seven out of seven. Yeah, there we go. Uh, the other one was Henry the Eighth. Henry the Eighth. Yeah. So the next I one we you, have I told is you start throwing those Henry the Eighth plays, and you're not going to get anything out of me. <laughs> <laughs> so we have Valentine. Valentine. Two gents. Uh, there's a balance. How many? Two. And Twelfth Night. That's right. Yeah. Woo. Yeah. Serving at the beginning. That is, that's, that was a tough one. Yeah, I spent a whole summer watching Twelfth Night, so there you go. Ah, uh, there you go. <laughs> so, the next one we have, this is a particularly difficult one. Antonio appears in four plays. Can you name all four? Okay. Antonio, Merchant, Much Ado, Twelfth Night, And the last one's the tricky one. Yep. yep. Let's go. Yeah. Let's say. Um, no, no idea. 
Tempest. Oh, that's not that hard. Oh, I missed myself out. I was in like Pericles going, is there some Antonio in Pericles I don't know about? <laughs> of course, it's Antonio in the Tempest, him and Sebastian. Jeez, come on now. So the next one we have is Portia. Portia. Uh, there's two, right? Yep, there are two. Yeah, Caesar and uh, Merchant. That's right. The next one is Bianca. How many? Two. Two. I keep forgetting that part. That's all right. That's all right. Uh, well, there's Bianca in Taming of the Shrew and Bianca and Othello. That's that right. Been, that would have been embarrassing. I would have been <laughs> wondering. Um, so the next one we have is Sebastian. And the name Sebastian actually appears in three plays, but one of them is kind of a trick question. Uh-huh. So, well, there's Twelfth Night, and mm -hmm. then Antonio's counterpart is Sebastian. And Tempest, right? Am I right, right on that? Yep. Okay, so that's... And then the third one is a tricky one. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sebastian. I'll give you a hint. The character's name is not actually Sebastian. Yeah, I... You, hmm. Yeah, they... Oh. So somebody's pretending. Yep. It hit me. I don't know. So the answer is... Twelfth Night is Julia's fake name when she goes out into the woods. Or not Twelfth Night, uh, Two Gentlemen of Verona, rather. That's the Sebastian. Yeah. All right. So the next one we have, I'm going to skip that one because that one's just stupid. It's all obscure characters. So we have Claudio in mm -hmm. two plays. Yeah. That's Measure for Measure and Much Ado. That's right. Uh, the next one we have, we're getting into the, the harder ones pretty soon, but... Uh, <laughs> oh, they're oh, great, pretty soon. <laughs> uh, the, we'll go with uh, Helena is the next one. Helena, two? In two, yes. Yeah, All's Well and Midsummer. That's right. And then Amelia. Amelia. Othello. That's and, right. And Amelia. There's another Amelia. This is this one I should know. Hit me, don't know. Winter's Tale. Ah, that's actually that's a smaller part. I don't know if, I'm not. Yeah, gonna, it is pretty small. Winter's Tale terrifies me, so there we go. I'm not embarrassed about that. So how about uh, Demetrius? How many? Two. <laughs> Midsummer. Yep. <laughs> and Demetrius. You're gonna hate me. Oh, man. Is it Tros and Cressida? No, it's Timon of Athens. Time, yeah, well, pretty much. The <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the next one we have is Angelo. Angelo. Uh, measure for measure and an Italian one. <laughs> uh, Angelo. There's another Angelo in... There's another Angelo in Titus Andronicus. <laughs> Comedy of Errors. Comedy of Errors. <laughs> Another one I'm terrified by. <laughs> so the next one we have is Paris. Paris. Uh, two, right? Yeah, that's right. Sweet. Troilus and Cressida and Romeo and Juliet. That is absolutely correct. Uh, Brutus appears in two plays. Brutus. Um, a different Brutus, though. So there's Brutus and Caesar, and then Antony and Cleopatra, right? Is there no, or there's actually Marcellus Brutus. No, hang on. How many? There's two. No, there are actually three. You're right. So, all right. So one. Antony and Cleopatra, Julius Caesar, 
and and oh, there's another there's another Greek based one. Uh, don't know. I'm gonna have to fact check myself because I'm second guessing now. But I believe there's a Brutus and Coriolanus. There probably is. <laughs> Um, and it, it seems like that would have a Brutus in it. Yep. <laughs> so this one is actually really, really tricky, which is why we're going to end with it. And it is Caius. Caius. There are four. Caius. Well, isn't it, is it Caius Cassius from Caesar? Yep, that's okay. one. That's one. Caius. Um, Coriolanus? Yep. Okay, sweet. There you go. Um, <laughs> Caius Martius is Coriolanus's actual name. All right. Caius. Uh, is there two in Caesar? Is there two Ca Caiuses in Caesar? Because they do. They like to do that name switch when the, the second half of conspirators come in. You know, I know there's there's Caius Cassius, but there's also Casca. Okay. Do I get confused sometimes? Time. That's not who I'm thinking of, but anyway, I was trying to I was trying to be sneaky. All right, Caius, uh, Caius in Titus. Is there a Caius in that one? Nope. Good. That's what I thought. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I'm good after that. All right. So in Julius Caesar, there's Caius Cassius. In Coriolanus, Caius Marcius is Coriolanus's actual name. Uh, in the Merry Wives of Windsor. Caius is, I believe, either a character or Ford's name in disguise. And I believe it's actually just a character, so forget I said that. And uh, King Lear, uh, Caius is Kent's fake name when he goes out. So that one was a super tricky one. You're tricking me. <laughs> out of this whole list, you've got, let's see, 31 out of a possible 38, and that includes your that's, extra credit. Hey, that's better than I did in school. That's like fantastic. <laughs> that was, I think you're the new champion of this game. Like, that is the new mark to beat. Because wow. this, this game was particularly difficult. Anyway, <laughs> congratulations, Seleni. I'm going to crank up the ego and be like, I knew I would do well. That was easy. <laughs> you win. My respect and the respect of the nerdy listeners of this Good. podcast. That's all That's all I care about. All 12 of them. <laughs> um, <laughs> next segment we're going to move on to is what has become my new favorite, actually. And I, I say pretty much every segment is my favorite because I love them all. But right now, the way I feel in this moment, this segment is my favorite, is the rhetorical device of the day. And today is anthemeria. Anthemeria, by definition, is when a speaker or a writer changes the part of speech of a word as a method of persuasion or as a rhetorical tool. So, for example, we have uh, the chorus in Henry V. Um, for the, the opening speech, part of the speech is, and at his heels, leashed in like hounds, should famine, sword, and fire crouch for employment. Leash, obviously a noun, leashed in being the verbization of it. Hamlet also says, and thus the native hue of resolution is sicklied or with the pale cast of thought, turning an adjective into a verb, right? So one of the characters that fascinates me the most is a character that uses this a lot, and her name is Cleopatra, from Antony and Cleopatra, of course, for example, she says at one point in the play, he shall have every day a several greeting 
or I'll unpeople Egypt. Mm -hmm. She also says, horrible villain, or I'll spurn thine eyes like balls before me. I'll unhair thy head. Yep, that's the famous one. Yeah. So, as far as Anthemeria goes, what effect does this have on us as an audience? Um, you know, it's, it's interesting. This is probably the most popular one we use in everyday speech. Mm-hmm. Um, be, we love doing this. Uh, you know, it's, I know this is a Shakespeare podcast, but I'm going to make it into a pop culture one. <laughs> they, they did it in how Neil Patrick Harris did it all the time in How I Met Your Mother. You know, mm-hmm. I just lawyered you. Yep. You know, lawyered. Yeah, it, it, I, I said the other day, I just got Scooby Dude. You know, it, mm-hmm. it's it. It is such a way. It's such a cool way of. Um, I mean, they're not obviously in the pop culture world and not poetical. So, but drawing it in, it's a fantastic way to create imagery. You know, to use the Henry Five, uh, leashed in like hounds. You know, we get it. We get it because we can see the this a leash and what is happening being pulled back. You know, um, it, it's it's a fantastic tool to create um, to get an audience. I always say that um, you know my kind of analogy for the you know the difference between you know. Acting Shakespeare and acting regular life, um, it's a religious one, so bear with me, um, is that back then they really talked to God. Mm-hmm. And now it, religion has become a very private thing. So back then they would literally look up to the heavens and scream to the heavens. And now, you know, religion, out of respect for all religions, we kind of fold our hands and, and make it a private moment, which politically I believe is correct. But in that land... To, so using this the device allows a, an audience, especially a modern one now, since we seem to have embraced it so much in everyday life, allows us to live uh, to it helps us to create imagery that mm-hmm. lives up to these plays. It gets you into the mind space of a bigger world. Shakespeare is a bigger world right. where people are turned off by Shakespeare is when they see, you know, I don't know if there's such any there is such thing as poorly done Shakespeare, but uh, you know, with all due respect, when it's not done at a high high level, we go, oh, that's terrible and boring. But when it's done at a high level, things like that help us get, you know, to crank our audience meter up to ten to mm. live in the world of these characters. You know, um, when modern theater TV is very, oh, you know, this is this is what I'm feeling, blah blah blah. We have to express ourselves on a grander scale, and this is one of the main tools that that he uses to do that by creating this imagery, this very visceral imagery. You know, unhair thy head. You know, it's very clear in being, you know, not only clear and clever, um, but it's also very. It can be tricky, but it's it's done so well that it actually helps to clarify. Um, the you know, it can also be. It's interesting how it does heighten things in certain places, like leashed in like hounds, uh, mm-hmm. or sickly door with a pale cast of thought. But in the case of unpeople Egypt, she doesn't yeah. say, I'm going to kill everybody in Egypt, or I'm going to remove everybody from Egypt. She yeah. says, unpeople. And to an extent, sometimes it almost seems like in Shakespeare and even in, in modern day, 
We mm-hmm. use anthemeria when we're either either too lazy to think of the word we're, we need <laughs> in the other part of speech or just can't find it, right? Yeah. There's not yeah. a word, for example, on how I met your mother, like, what would you say instead of lawyered? I just outwitted you using yeah. my lawyer skills. Yeah. No, it's it's simpler to say lawyered. It's, so we can call it creative laziness. Sure, yeah, we, we could call it creative laziness. Or on the other side of the coin... We could call it lazy creativity. Yeah. <laughs> Which is then juxtaposition. But there you go. <laughs> um, um, no, I think it's... It, I, I, like, I like what we just said. I think that's a, that's a nice... That's a very good way of putting it. Like, it also makes it very obvious to the audience. Rather than use a more complicated word... For example, King Lear at one point says... Um, when the rain came to wet me once and the wind to make me chatter, when the thunder would not peace at my bidding. Yep. Um, yep. Not silence itself or, or whatever is the more complicated word, but peace is the is the noun, which is the point at which he wants the storm to get. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Instead of coming up with, with a more roundabout word, it's just mm-hmm. simpler and in easier communication to say the thunder would not peace. Mm-hmm. And it scams. Yeah. Well, and <laughs> so, like anything that's else in Shakespeare. That's probably the real reason. <laughs> he goes, oh, crap, that doesn't fit. <laughs> Let's do it. Well, and that's so funny because all of these rhetorical devices in, in Shakespeare, not all of them, but many of them, result in, like, like a syndeton sometimes when you're taking out the, the, the uh, conjunction from the phrase, sometimes it's just because it fits the meter. And where is the balance... I mean, Shakespeare obviously had to be aware of all of these things as he was writing them in, but also, where's the balance between, oh, I'm interjecting this because it's creative and helpful and useful for how I want to communicate, and, oh man, that word doesn't fit. I'm going to have to make this meter fit somehow. Mm-hmm. There, I mean, there's a creative balance in all of it, but which one was was what swayed him to write that sentence the way he did, and it's yeah. interesting to look at that. Well, and, you know, and the, the fact that he made up words, you know, it... it like a good jazz musician, he was truly a master of his craft. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to be an elite jazz musician, you must be the master of your instrument and then break the rules in a creative way. And that's what's so cool. And we have these rules now a lot of the times because he broke them. You know? Yep. And made it to fit what he needed. And and one more thing I want to say about it is... Like a good jazz musician that breaks the rules in a creative way and in an effective way, it's fun. It's yeah. so fun to see I'll unpeople Egypt. It makes me yeah. giggle just looking at it. It's yeah. like, what is that? Well, and it's cool. It's just flat out cool. I mean, mm-hmm. to put it in like the you know the most frat boy way, it's so cool. Yeah, like it's it would it's what make like you said it gets you giddy. It's what. It's what makes, you know, us nerds, us Shakespeare nerds dig this stuff, you know, how, yep. how creative he is. So absolutely. Well, that's a fun little topic. Yeah. Um, so the next thing I have planned for today is uh, a new segment that I started last week called Shakespearean Text Database. And for this segment, uh, I use an amazing resource. Listeners, if you're Shakespeare nerds like I am, go check it out. It's www.opensourceshakespeare.org. It has all of Shakespeare's plays, sonnets, poems uh, in a database that you can search 
through multiple filters. So you can search for words, you can search for phrases, and then you can filter it to search by play, by character, by genre, by date, by number of different things. And actually today, I decided to search by genre. I was curious, after seeing last week's results, when Amelia and I searched for Dream in multiple different plays, uh, seeing how it appeared much more often in the comedies than the tragedies, but appeared more in the tragedies than I expected it to. And what I did for today was I, I delved into that a little bit more. I thought, what words appear more often in comedies than in tragedies and vice versa? And I thought it would be cool to explore a couple words that I thought would uh, appear more often in one or the other or words that I didn't know which it would appear more often in. And so I took a bunch of these words and I put them through this database to see whether they appeared more often in comedies or tragedies. And just to keep the action going of the podcast, I'm going to ask you, Lenny, to guess which it appeared more often in the comedy or the tragedy. So the first word is love. Uh, comedy. Yep. 911 to 661 in the tragedies. That's the coolest thing ever. This is like, this is like Shakespeare math. Yep. Awesome. All right, here we go. Keep going. Shakespeare go. statistics. Yeah. Even, Ooh, even nerd. a class in high school. All right, this, here we go. This is the baseball statistics nerd in me coming out in my artistic side. Dude, I'm a huge baseball statistics nerd. All right. <laughs> we have to talk about this later. Yeah, well, so we'll save that for uh, on the baseball podcast. Here we go. <laughs> all right. So the next word is death. As a contrast to love, I figured I'd take a word that I had an opinion about one way or the other. So death. I will assume that it's in the tragedies. Yep. 161 in the comedies to 287 times in the tragedies. Wow. The next word, fight. Mmm. Fight. Let's go um, tragedies. Yep. It's actually overwhelmingly tragedies. 29 yeah. times in the comedies, 120 times in the tragedies. Are we limiting this just to the comedies and tragedies, or are the histories involved? In the this? histories are not included. Okay, so it's yep. comedy and tragedy specific. Just okay. comedy and tragedy. I okay. thought about adding history, but I didn't want to overcomplicate things. I just wanted yeah. to use the juxtaposition of comedy and tragedy sure. for this. Just, just, just wondering. Um, the next word is alas. Oh, and by the way, quick note, this is just the bare word by itself. Mm -hmm. No, like, deathly or fighting mm -hmm. or anything like that. Just the bare word in its essence. Alas. Alas. That's a good one. Good job. Um, let's go... Tragedy. It is. 76 to 84 in tragedies. Wow, that's close. Yeah, right? Closer than you'd think, also. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess characters say alas about love a yeah, lot. Yeah, because that's or... what I was thinking. I just kept thinking, like, my hand going to my forehead and saying alas. <laughs> <laughs> but then I figured, let's go the other way. So the next one is day. day. Or, yeah. Next one is day. Hmm. Let's go comedies. It's actually more in the tragedies, yeah, and I was surprised you know, that was to a hear. Tricky one. I, I, no. 175 times in comedies, 184 in the tragedies. The next Close, one is Close. the next one but is yeah, night. Yeah, makes sense. Night. <laughs> tragedies. Yep, absolutely. Okay, good. <laughs> 163 times in the comedies, 240 in the tragedies. All right. The next one, happy. Uh, I, I, I'm, look, if this isn't comedy, then we need to have a full discussion about this. It is, actually. Okay, it's, <laughs> but it's 
it's much, much closer than I thought, which is why this is one of the ones I wanted to bring up. I, I'm not quoting all the words I searched, mm-hmm. but Happy appears 52 times in the comedies, but 51 times in the tragedies, which surprised yeah. me. It's really that close, and I started to think about why, and I, I think it's, it's partially used ironically in the tragedies, mm-hmm. uh, or as something being not happy, I would, I would guess, because, for example, we have Juliet saying... Oh, happy dagger, this is thy sheath. And, and granted, that's a comedy, but it's not used in a comedic way. Mm-hmm. Um, sleep is the next one. Hmm. I'm going to go tragedy. Yep. And 71, to death. 71 in comedies to 92 in tragedies. And yeah, sleep is kind of associated with death. So mm-hmm. um, the next one, these, this one, these two, these next two are the ones that I found the most interesting. And you, you're going to love this. Good. So... Men. Oh. Wow. Oh. You know, I'm going to go comedy. You know, it's actually tragedy. No, I see. I I, I was trying to be smarter than I am. Yeah. Okay. 191 in comedies, 273 times in the tragedies. Yeah, you know, that makes complete sense. That makes complete sense. Um, And what's interesting to me is I think... There, there are more comedies than there are tragedies, if I'm not mistaken, right? So, instantly, like, the, the comedies sort of have the advantage swayed to them yeah. for most of these things, which is why it really surprises me when the tragedies win something like, like, day, you yeah. know? It makes um, sense in men, though, looking back, because a lot of the, the lead, the leads in the tragedies are, are dominant males, you know, Hamlet, sure. Richard, and all that kind of stuff. So the next one, women. You got, I, I, I'm going to say comedies. Yeah. Yeah. Women, 73 times in the comedies, 56 in the tragedies. So mm-hmm. more, more instances of men in tragedy and more instances of women in comedy. Mm-hmm. wonder what that says about Shakespeare. The next one, just a pure ekphenesis. Oh. Oh. I'm going to go... Oh, man. Because you go, oh, as in realizations of bad things coming, or oh, I'm in love. Ah, mm-hmm. oh, um, Let's go tragedies. Yeah. All right. By a wide margin, too. Really? 50, 571 times in comedies, 784 in tragedies. So yeah. over 200 more times in the tragedies than in the comedies. Yeah, you, you get those repeat O's of people screaming. That could mm-hmm. be it. <laughs> <laughs> the last one is learn. Learn. Yep. Everybody's dead at the end of tragedies. Nothing to learn there. So let's go comedy. You know, it's actually the tragedies. I'm gonna flip the table. That <laughs> so learn appears 28 times in the comedies, 29 times in the tragedies, and there's there's an interesting um, addition to this. Learn appears quite often in Love's Labor's Lost, which is why I chose this word. I was curious. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Love's Labor's, if you subtract Love's Labor's Lost from this, I'll bet it would be way different, but it's within one. Obviously, they're, they're surprisingly close, and I was surprised about that. I expected Learn to be there more times in the comedies, mm-hmm. but 28 to 29. Wow. Cool. So, final segment we have today, um, now that we're running out of time, I'm going to try to speed this up a little, is Tyrant Director, which is another segment I invented just for the most recent podcast. And basically the rules of Tyrant, or Tyrant Producer, the rules of Tyrant Producer is 
Tyrant producer gives you a million dollars to direct his production of a Shakespeare show, but he has a great idea, which is actually a really bad idea, but you are taking his million dollars to direct this production and make it work. So what do you do when your tyrant producer says, your Othello has to be 18 years old? Not just cast as 18 years old, but set as an 18-year-old in the context of the play. What problems does this create for us, and how can we solve it? Okay, so the character's 18, not the actor. Yes. Um, Both. Both. So it is an 18-year-old actor playing an 18-year-old Othello. Yes. Okay. Well, okay. Well, the obvious ones are you hope that he's talented enough. Um, Mm. But we'll move on from there because that's the obvious. Um, You know, uh, in... You know, with everything that's happening in our world today, with the reemergence of racism and Ferguson and, and uh, you know, police violence and all that, um, it, it can easily fall in to if we go traditional casting, and that's what I'm assuming we mean. Mm-hmm. Um, it can easily fall into the trap of a young, angry black man. Um, so... That's the problem. Now, just to make sure that I'm understanding this, this portion is how do I try and fix that problem? How do you make a production something that you would be willing to put on stage and have your name attached to? And have my name attached to. <laughs> um, Basically, you just have to make it a success. You have you know? to make it you, artistically viable. Okay, here we go. Yeah. Um, Let's use that phrase. Yeah, I think that... If you can, I would do everything in my power to to try and fight that stereotype, um, to make it, I would highlight um, the, the, the accomplishments of Othello mm-hmm, um, sure. at the top. I would highlight, um, you know, very much uh, kind of what happened in our production. I would highlight the virtues of him. Right. Uh, the um, the the noble qualities that that the character does possess. I'm not making these up, so I don't want to make it like I have to create these things. To right, right. But you, you're using costumes and using thing. sets and I using. I would highlight these things. Yeah. And, and I would put them to the forefront that this is a man that has served his country. That this is a man that has risen against all these circumstances put against him. That has won over the court, that has won over the sentence, that has won over the heart of a good woman. You have um, to sort of make it seem like he's a prodigy. Yeah, you know? he is. Like, he, that's, a, that's a perfect word. He is the chosen one. He is the one that will lead Italy to glory mm. in more ways than one. Um, like, this guy I, was, when he was 12 years old, he was, yep. he was you yep. know, picking up a sword and, and dueling yep. with his and, father. And, and battles. Yep. Um, I would highlight... The negativity of of the Senate and the dad, mm. um, with the exception of the Duke, um, the Duke who has that great lines: uh, "Your um, son-in-law is more fair than black." Um, so he's not necessarily against Othello, but Lodovico is very much pushing. We have to send Othello. He's the one that's got to go. He's the one that's got to go. We could highlight that as a more negative kind of connotation to show that the Senate is using him as a tool. Mm-hmm. And then I would cast the single greatest actor ever that, you know, we don't know who's mm-hmm. our actor as Iago. And I would highlight very much like we did in ours, the, 
masterful manipulation of of Othello. Um, and what you were talking about, if we want to jump back and tie it into the, tra- the tragic flaw really quick, since he is so young, yeah. he can have a predatory, older Iago preying on insecurities of someone who has risen so fast. Well, it creates, yeah, exactly. It creates this this conflict, it, uh, it heightens the conflict between Iago and Othello, because Iago believes that Othello stole his seat, right? Yeah, and. Yeah. So having an 18-year-old in that production actually makes it uh, almost more more sympathetic towards Iago, right? Yeah. Maybe Iago you paint as as a victim who is, you know, good old honest Iago who has been working his way to the top for all of these years, and then all of a sudden the next in line is some 18-year-old kid, yeah, and then the audience really gets why yeah. Othello's, yeah. why Iago's so hurt. Yeah. Now, here's it can it can elevate it. It can definitely elevate it. Um, which is why a lot of times you see older Iagos, even though he says he's I don't know what he says he's 28. Um, but you can alter that map any way you want. Right. Um, so I think you know this this tyrant producer. You could actually flip it. You know, now having discussed it with you, into something that could be pretty poignant and very powerful in in. Um, in our time right now. The, how the do you, pitfall is... The how pitfall, do you cast your Desdemona? It's <sighs> a good question. Yeah, right? Yeah, you cast, I think... I would almost uh, make her, like, 16. I, you know, I think what you could do is... If you... There's two ways. you can If you make her really young, um, as young as him, not weird young... You know, young mm-hmm. enough that they could be in young love, you know, more Romeo and Juliet type love. Um, or you could make her a little older and she is attracted to a young man, mm-hmm. um, which you see a lot with Macbeth nowadays. Um, and you could see because there is that kind of um, uh that rumor that will be, it's the Amelia rumor, whether or not Othello slept with Amelia. Um, but you could also, you know, kind of prey on, you can tie Rodrigo into this and you could tie Amelia into it and you can t- tie in the young man is with a slightly older woman who Iago could have a thing for that Rodrigo definitely has a thing for, you know, mm-hmm. you could, you could add a whole bunch of layers based on how you cast around the concept around that young man um that's actually really interesting that's a great you know it went from it went from tyrant producer to okay maybe we can make that work (laughs) well and you know what as directors and as actors and as artists that's our job anyway yeah if somebody has an idea we make it work and then they call it magic and we're done for the day yeah you know and i think well like we said in this production there there is certainly a bunch of loopholes, I'm sure, in the text that we'd have to look over and overcome. But just by making uh, Othello's Othello younger, all of a sudden, it's sometimes easier to forgive some of those flaws. Like, yeah. if, if a if a 30-year-old man hits a woman, you know, he, he should have known better by now. But an 18-year-old, yeah, he's kind of a douche, but... Yeah. You can almost, it's almost easier to forgive somebody who's young. It's the same yeah. problem we face with Proteus in Two Gentlemen of Verona that I was talking about with Amelia last week. Like, Proteus 
tries to rape somebody. And if you make him young, yeah, it's not forgivable, but it's more forgivable than if he were, you know, 23. And same with Claudio shaming Hero. That would be a hard scene, you know, um, the the hitting, because you need he needs to be young and rash. And I think, but you like I said, you just don't want to make him an angry young black man. Uh, I think if it comes and there's immediate regret, you know, and you can see that, oops, I crossed the line. It, it, it's it's a fine line to walk. It's a fine line to walk. You know, one thing you were talking about, things you would highlight earlier. One thing I would add to that is I would I would highlight the pressures that are heaped on him as yeah. a prodigy. You know, in highlighting all of his accomplishments, I would I would highlight the praise as well and, and the expectations for him wherever they may lie. Yeah. And and maybe paint a picture of a of a young man who who's had all this pressure heaped on top of him for for rising so fast and like for example you're a Cubs fan Chris yeah. Bryant right Chris Bryant yeah. was come, was expected to come up for the Cubs he was a rookie this year who's expected to come up and just lead the team and be um, like hit 40 home runs and be the most amazing player and he didn't do that he struggled for a little while he didn't even hit his first home run for like you know, three, three or four weeks. Yeah. But I mean, and he's doing well now. He's got 27 on the year. But he, um, it's it's kind of like the the ideas of a young general with a lot of expectations placed on him. You can paint a, you can tell a story of maybe how he crumbles by yeah. the end and then is driven to murder. Yeah. Yeah, it, it there's there's many many ways to go about it, which is what's cool. Again, right time, right back to what we talked to in the very beginning, in, um, just in a conversation about you know from a question that's supposed to be like, how do you fix this major problem? Comes just you know uh, from a random you know quick conversation, five possibilities. Mm-hmm. And which one do you pick, or do you, or how do you blend them all, or how do we do this? How do we do that? That's what's so cool. And that's what the, you know, however many month long directorial process is for. But yep. <laughs> we had a lot of fun coming up with the beginnings of it in about 10 minutes. Yeah. So we are about out of time. Um, and before we go, I just wanted to give you a chance to talk a little bit about Titan Theater, maybe your upcoming productions, and just tell the listeners how they can keep track of your work and how they can follow you on social media. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, the season, you know, after sitting on a on a Shakespeare podcast is the first season that we've kind of opened up programming a little bit um, to kind of reach a a broader audience. Uh, We do have a Shakespeare on the docket, which we're really excited about. um, But the first show that goes into rehearsal in a week and a half is the importance of being earnest. And that is directed by Terry Lehman um, starring uh, Jeff Winner, Angela Iannone as Lady Bracknell. We're very excited about that. Those dates, I believe are October 23rd till uh, November 8th, I believe that is the correct date. It's all on the website, which is www.titantheatercompany.com. Um, our second show is uh, our original musical adaptation of A Christmas Carol, which won Best Production in Queens last year. Uh, that is um, a annual production that uh, is for the community of Queens that has embraced us, that we're very excited about. Um, Going into year two, year one being such a huge success, we're just uh, we're just ecstatic that we're able to bring it back and that the community has embraced it so much. Um, and then the third production we have this year is Julius Caesar. If they're all the talk of how many Brutuses there are in the 
in the canon. Um, and that is directed by uh, someone that you and I know both, uh, both know very well, uh, Jack Young, who is the artistic director at Houston Shakespeare Festival, mm-hmm. as well as the uh, head of the professional actor training program at the University of Houston. Um, and he'll be doing his version, which is a very cool kind of uh, 300 meets the Matrix meets Suzuki meets Viewpoints version of uh, Julius Caesar. Uh, we're really stoked about that. And we're also launching um, a gigantic outreach project, um, which will, um, it's a three-year project that's in, um, in partnership with the Queen's Library, which is the largest library um, system in the country, uh, when we will do over the next three years uh, stage readings of the entire Shakespeare canon. Um, and then at the end of that three years, the borough of Queens will vote on their favorite one, and we will put a full production of that up. Wow. So pretty stoked about that. Um, yeah. But yeah, you can follow us um, on Facebook, Titan Theater Company, on Twitter at Titan Theater Co., um, on Facebook, or uh, I mean, uh, Instagram at Titan Theater Co., we're on them all. So, uh, yeah. Great. And for myself, my name's Kyle Downing. I'm a Shakespeare coach in New York City, and you can follow me on all forms of social media, on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at NYShakesGuy. On Facebook, you can like my page, NYShakesGuy. And on YouTube, you can subscribe to me at Kyle Downing, parentheses, NYShakesGuy. And of course, for more free tips, hints, and material suggestions from all 37 of Shakespeare's plays, you can visit my website, www.kyledowning.com slash Shakespeare. I'm Kyle Downing. For Lenny Banavez, thanks so much for listening, and keep up the hard work on your bard work.